Good evening, you are listening to the Three Moves Ahead podcast, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me tonight is podcast familiar Julian Rabbit Murdoch, uh, in the midst of his RabbitCon recuperation. Yeah, I definitely, I, I, I definitely need a little recovery time. I'm still, still, still peeling it away, as it were. Speaking of recovery time, uh, we have with us tonight returning guest Corey Demiurge-Banks, fresh from a visit to my place. Uh, Corey, thanks for doing this at the end of what I know has been a long, long week. You're welcome. Can I ask a question? Yeah. How do you know it's evening when people are listening to the show? Oh, I don't know. And I don't just, really it's care. A, it's, but just it's, like, <laughs> it's like Masterpiece Theater for some of these people. Good evening. <laughs> no, see, we're, we, are on, we are on three moves ahead time now. Okay, oh. So that's right. Like, like, no matter where you are right now listening to this, you know, it's the end of a hard day of work, and now it's evening, and we're going to sip our whiskey and talk strategy, as gentlemen do. Exactly. And discuss whether Jerry's going to cross the pond. Exactly. Exactly. Excellent. Uh, so we have kind of a quiet post-RabbitCon show for you tonight, mainly because, uh, you know, half the regular panel spent the weekend drunk and playing board games. Uh, I thought we could just do a show on single malt scotches, but Corey and Julian insisted we talk about games, so you can direct your complaints to them. If I ever see a single malt scotch again, my liver is just going to explode. <laughs> From happiness. <laughs> sure, call it that. That's fine. <laughs> uh, so guys, we had some great new games at this RabbitCon and a lot of old favorites, but I really think we've got to talk about Seven Wonders first. Um, is it fair to say that was the, that was the hit game of this RabbitCon? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And and we touched on it briefly on that other podcast we do, but but briefly it would be the operative word. And and I wanted to dig in a little bit to to what makes games like this so satisfying, right? And I've I've been thinking about it a lot since we talked about it um you know, sort of in in our wrap up on Sunday talking about all the things we'd played. And you know, let's let's briefly just say what Seven Wonders in. It's a drafting game in that everybody gets seven cards out of a communal deck. You pick one card and you pass it along. And what you do with that one card is sort of build an infrastructure for yourself. You build an engine, like many sort of German games. Um, and and it's easy to compare it to a game like Dominion, a game we've talked about on this show before, where. You're sort of building a deck, although in this case, you're only playing that card once and it goes out on your tableau and there it sits. And what you're building is kind of a classic German strategy engine where you've got a little science engine that gives you points at the end and a little resource engine that gives you points at the end, uh, you know, and a little merchant engine that lets you trade with your neighbors. But I, I think what's most satisfying about this is that games like this, games like Dominion, um, games like uh, Agricola or even games like Settlers of Catan, they often really start to feel like you're playing solitaire, right? You're working on your engine optimization. I mean, I think there are hundreds of strategy games that fall into that trap where ultimately it comes down to who's got the better solitaire engine going and a little bit of luck and maybe a little tiny bit of screw your neighbor. You got a resource that I really needed to complete my engine, and where Seven Wonders really differs is that, like in drafting in that game that we all love so much, Magic the Gathering, who you're sitting next to actually matters more than any sense of, of your own engine, right? If you get a sense early of what the guy to the left or right of you, and you pass both ways through three sets of decks, three drafts, basically, um, if you get a good sense for the kind of engine your neighbors on either side are going to build you can dominate the draft by selecting the things that are going to be ignored by them. So you'll get the powerful cards in one particular engine, whether that's resources or whatever. 
Um, and that I think incredibly satisfying because it rewards player skill, but it also a little bit like poker rewards really sussing out the people you're playing with very well. And then it adds another layer to that, which is much of this game is about the resources your neighbors have. So you get to buy anything that you don't have. You have some amazing card you want to play. You're missing some key components to it. You can effectively borrow or buy those resources just for a few minutes to make your, you know, make your guild hall or whatever uh, by what your neighbors have. So you can actually kind of socially encourage your neighbors to build the things that you need that you know you'll never get. So it's got it's got all those different layers going on to it, and all of those are actually very interactive layers, and that I think is very satisfying because really, even in video games, quite often I feel like they end up becoming a kind of solitaire, even if you are playing against another opponent. So did you guys get like kind of a a heavy like civilization vibe from this as well? Because uh, you know a, a big part of this is. You know, you're talking about this, like, multi-axis scoring system, right? So, like, if you go down the science track, you get, you know, you, you, you count up your points in the science category at the end of the game. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're also playing a military minigame with your neighbor to your left and right. And so it's got this, you know, military mechanic where, you know, if you, you can rack up some really cheap, easy victory points if you're the only person uh, who decides to, you know, plunk down an army. But... The military almost ri- like military buildings almost never have any value beyond their ability to help you win the battle during the battle phase, and so if you get you know if you get caught up in arms races, your whole little triumvirate, you know your little you know your your neighbors and and you fighting your little wars, you're all kind of cannibalizing each other while you know someone across the table could be, you know, moving ahead with collecting raw materials, uh, collecting merchant buildings, collecting guilds, uh, so. Yeah, I mean, going back to that that interactivity, but but also I, I just I really enjoyed how I don't know I, I really got a strong vibe of playing like a little mini card based civilization. I know th- and I know that's all theme, but at the I, same no, time, I, I don't think it's all theme at all. I, I I didn't get that sense the first time I played it, but when I sat down and actually started looking at the rules, I, we when we played the first time, Julian just kind of skimmed through the rules and we jumped in and figured it out and. and it, Bear is mentioning that it's very easy to figure out after the first couple of turns. It has that Dominion type of yeah, feel. Yeah, my, my, my 11-year-old daughter uh, is currently 6 and 9 out of the 9 <clears throat> right. games she's played. Yeah, which is not, not bad at all. It's much better than I did. But as I was looking through the, menu, uh, through the manual, it has tech trees. And I mean, there really yes. is a tech tree component to this. Like you can, you can think about the strategy with which you want to build what you might possibly get. So... It, Taking that concept of a tech tree from civilization and randomizing it because your your neighbor may not give you exactly what you need to build the next piece of your tech, right? So it, it, it puts an interesting spin on that. The other part of your question um, was about – the other, the other part that I latched onto about your question was thinking about what the people across the table – are doing as opposed to just your neighbors that you're interacting with. And this was something I never quite got the hang of, probably because I'm a terrible poker player, but you're 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 really interacting with two people on either side of you, but you really have to pay attention to what the guy across from you is doing too because he could totally be outscoring you. Yeah, and and that's really that's a classic drafting mechanic where um, you know, it, to the well, it's not in magic, but in other types of drafting games where you need to be keeping track of the distribution. And and 
if you want to play any game like this extremely well, you need to know what's in the deck. You need to know how many of what card are out there. And if your strategy relies on going down a certain tech tree, um, there are ways around it, right? It's worth pointing out in this game, the tech tree is essentially what lets you get stuff for free. You can always buy a card later if you happen to have the right resources. But when you get towards the end game, the difference between being able to get the card for free and having it having to have sort of the perfect set of resources to get that card is the difference most of the time between being able to play it and not being able to play it, right? There are no resources in the sense like there's no chits that you have to collect, it's like every turn is a blank slate and you've got what you've got for that turn. Um, and if you just happen to be that one resource short and you can't buy it from your neighbor, you're just shut out of that card. But if you're manipulating through the tech tree, you get to build everything for free in that tree from the first card on. right? So it's hugely powerful to be able to, to dominate that tech tree. But if there are only two or three cards in the middle of that tech tree and both of them are across the table in a seven-player game, then you could be investing in the early parts of a tree that are never going to pan out. Right. And another thing I thought about was the smallest game I ever played in was four players. Um, there's There are variant rules for two players, but it sounded like three was really the minimum. And it's a wildly different game when you start adding more people. Sure. Yeah. And you add more cards, right? So you're always playing with seven cards. So in a three-player game, each deck that you're dealing out has 21 cards. In a seven-player game, you're dealing out 49, right? So it's obviously a very different game with a lot more card variety and a lot more paths to victory uh, and and more paths to mediocrity in a seven player game. I think in a three player game, I did play one three player game, and there's an immediate runaway success problem. Somebody really gets an engine going off a couple of early fast, you know, right. early cards um, that can really hurt you. And I imagine as you get better at that game, if you're playing three players, you recognize, wow, I really shouldn't pass this card. I should play this even though it's not part of the strategy I'm working, just so that Corey doesn't get it. Sure, you get a, more of a screw your neighbor aspect there. Did um, do you, you're you guys are deeper strategy gamers than I am. Do you feel like it was it was easy to get hamstrung if you didn't play the right cards in the first age? Like you'd be really stuck in the third. No, I, I think I think if you come, you know, it, it is in three phases. I feel like if you come out of the second age without an idea of which way you're going, you're kind of screwed. But the first age, kind of, I mean, and this is where I start getting the vibes from Civilization, right? It's really hard to lose a game of Civilization in the first, say, 40 or 50 turns, right? right. You can pretty much recover from, oh, I, you know, I built a worker and I should have been a, built a settler. Or, I mean, it, it's not nearly as build order dependent as, as an RTS like StarCraft where you screw up the first 30% of your StarCraft game and you quit. I mean, that's what people do. It's like, oh, I blew the build order. He knows what he's doing. Quit. Um, this is not that way at all. You can kind of blow the beginning of the game because you are going to get to play a card every turn no matter what. And it's very well balanced. And very few cards in the first age are useless later uh, that, that you can pretty much recover. But if you're two-thirds of the way through the game and you're looking around the table... You know, I, I, it's it's really interesting, actually, the role the first age plays because... One of the real tensions in this game is, you know, the, the tension between exploiting the track you're already on coming out of the first age, but also diversifying so that you're going to have a nice, well-rounded score and expand some of the, um, you know, high point value stuff in the, in the third age. Right. And, you know, I found, like, if I took my first age stuff too seriously, it's like, you know, okay, here are my cards, this is my game plan, this is, you know, I'm, you know... I'm I'm tuning up for this kind of victory. 
Yeah, that worked fine, and I tended to post brilliant scores in those categories. So if I built like some of the, um, they're like pure victory point, um, you know, buildings you can construct. Uh, but they're very crummy in the first stage. It's like you know, um, like two and, victory points. Yeah. Just uh, one side note, an apology to our listeners. Uh, my audio is probably going to be sort of clouded over with the sound of a rather violent thunderstorm. Um, Tornado. Yes. If 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 he actually dies in the middle of this podcast, a I'll feel really bad about having just said that, and B <laughs> Troy Goodfellow will be back next week. <laughs> I think I think Rob Zagney could could podcast through a tornado. I think, I think that's as true. he's as he's ripped away, and you see like the lady on the bicycle out the window, right? <laughs> I, well, he'd, it'll be, he'd be clutching onto that snowball microphone like it'll a crazy be really great, mofo. like Edward R. Murrow, like newsman, like you know the building's collapsing <laughs> around me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, so yeah, so there's there's pure victory point cards, and the first age they're very crappy, but. Again, that whole if you have the base building in the te- in in the in the tech tree, and then you get the next building, and you've already got the the prerequisite card, you just plunk it down. It's free. If you do that, you can chain together some really impressive sets of buildings, and that's great. But that's not going to win the game alone. And right, nothing you... nothing wins the game alone. That's part of what's so satisfying about it. All right. of the paths are somewhat limited. I mean, military is capped out at 18, right? You can get 18 points off military if you absolutely win every single battle you can win. Um, I think the most you can get out of what you're talking about, the civic strategy, is something like 35 points. Right? Winning scores in this game are 45, 50, 60 points on a really good hand, right? So you're going to have to be able to score in a couple different dimensions. And, you know, the first couple of games that we played, the, you know, the science component of this, which, which is slightly complex because you're actually sort of building a grid of, of different kinds of sciences that talk to each other, um, we, everybody ignored it completely, and then it's too complicated. It was it seemed a little complicated and everybody's like, "Oh, we'll never manage to get three of a kind here and then this straight there." It just there's always like that impossible. one guy at the table who knows how it works. Yeah, somebody fig- right, and exactly. And then somebody started figuring it out and by the end of the weekend that was what I was mostly paying attention to, right? Because that the science component has this interesting effect of being uh, geometric, right? So if you have a certain number of points and if you basically get runs of certain cards, you score, you know, uh, you know, two cards will score you four and three cards, cards will score you nine. So you end up with these individual sets of cards that can each score you 25 points, right? So you can get a huge score if you pull it off. And I did see somebody pull off something like a 70-point game, and that wow. was like insane and it was because they had just created a perfect little science engine nice yeah it's I like, like that it was I mean, very dramatic all of a sudden yeah i'm pretty high up here like it is this is absurd uh, really. <laughs> like, like if i just cut out i mean it's probably gonna be power going out in the building so uh, you know be advised i'm sure um, you'll be fine and again but I, apologies for the booms on the uh, on the audio track this is not a board game i think you can replicate in a digital format Especially since it's a card game, but yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, sports, board game, card game, same thing, really. I mean, it's it's a game that that would not translate to an online version. Or, why? Why do you say that? I actually think I, I disagree. But why do you say? I that? think because I think there's too much information that you have to keep track of, and and you would uh, be able to display. All I can of see it. that. I can see that. I mean, in a seven player game, each player has something like fifteen or twenty cards in front of them. That's an awful lot. You'd have to be able to scroll through each tableau. But, but you know, there have been big, complicated games with big, complicated tableaus 
that do that, right? I mean, you can play Puerto Rico, for instance, on Brett's Bill Welt, and that involves keeping track of what building, you know, what if 15 buildings do people have and what if 20 plantations do people have? So I think you could do it. I think it would be less satisfying. Um, I think the reason it would be less interesting online versus something that's really purely strategic, like uh, 1960 making the president, which you and I played online quite a few times, Corey, is that, um, first of all, there's no accounting in this, which is where online versions of board games really excel. They can take care of all that accounting. The accounting in this, this game, whole game plays in 20 or 30 minutes, regardless of how many players are playing. So it doesn't benefit from all that accounting, it would, it would benefit from online scorekeeping, but it doesn't benefit from the accounting, really. And you would lose that sense of the almost poker-like sense of what's everybody around me doing. Right. right? And your right. interaction with your neighbors and that sort of subtle psychological shifting of being able to lean over to your left and say, oh, Rob, you got a great science engine going on there. You should drop a stone next time. I'm really short on stone. If you drop stone next time, I'll make sure I'm here for you on the science stuff. While I was sitting away from the mic, did you guys talk about um, there are those there are those cards? There's a few there's a few of them in the deck that allow you to profit wildly off your neighbor's hands. Yeah, the, in the, oh, in the, the third age. Ones. Well, yeah. or or in the third age, um, the end of the game, there are many game many cards which are the equivalent of the guild halls in Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, where where you're sort of getting these bonus points at the end. And most of those cards are actually about what your neighbors have done, right? Yeah. So if both of your neighbors have gone strong in commerce, there's a guild that gives you tons of points for having neighbors that are big commerce neighbors and, and ditto for science and, and construction and everything else. So there is that sense that if you can create synergy about what your neighbors are doing through social influence, you can really make something happen. You know, I really like this as a lighter, faster alternative to Agricola. I mean, I will, you know, I'll swear by Agricola to my dying breath, uh, but it can be hard to get people rounded up for a game and get them motivated to play one. It's tough to get people to spend three hours playing a game where they're not really doing a lot of interaction with one another. Yeah, and that, that that's a game that really devolves into the multiplayer solitaire thing. The only time you're competing is for the crap you took what I wanted to take. And right. that can be a little unsatisfying and... And to be fair, Agricola is a three-hour game about being the world's most average farmer, right? So it's it's not a theme Pretty that exciting. really uh, it's not a theme that really dominates the psyche. Whereas you know, building Giza to its highest glory, or building the Colossus of Rhodes, and building a mighty army to go behind it, there's a li- at least a little bit of theme there that can get you right. interested. But well, it, but it's still that same aspect of you don't want to be like you don't want to have the mightiest army in the world, but only have access to like gems right yeah you so still got- you still need to be somewhat average you need to be the most average wonder in the world <laughs> the most average of the seven wonders well i mean right. you need to be you need to be a well-rounded great civilization you know you can't be a total wimp because right. then you're just gonna be taking military losses and you take you get you take negative victory points for that and you're giving right. your neighbor uh you know a point three points five points in the uh, third age uh or is it eight points it's, it's a lot of points five. either yeah it's a lot of points um but, so yeah, yeah. So it's, it's very much about having a well-rounded empire. But going back to the theme stuff for a second, one thing that really impressed me about this game is that there's always a risk for a card, a risk for a card game like this to be really abstract and you know not really turn people on. I gotta say, the moment I saw the um, you know the wonder tiles, the the player tiles that people brought out, these paintings of these wonders and everything, 
it's like a civilization cutscene in you know a still frame from a Civ cutscene. I, I think I, I'm going to call bullshit because because the theme in this game is is kind of painted on with crayon. I mean it it works. It's but it's definitely just sort of saying oh civilization building. We know the important things for civilization building. You need civics, commerce. Uh, you know, resources and science, right? I mean, that's and a military, right? I mean, these are these are fundamental building blocks of thousands of games. The wonders theme with big air quotes around it, I really felt was kind of painted on. Now, the artwork is great and it's you know very satisfying, but this is not a theme heavy game, right? I can almost guarantee you this game was playtested with paper cards that just had the words printed on them. Because yeah, it doesn't really matter if you're playing as Giza versus no. I don't even remember what the yeah. other wonders that were that were available. There was uh, well, so so you uh, know, under in, the giant high, was not Her- one of Heraclitus, the wonders. Uh, the Colossus. In, in high school, they t- talk about these, you know, the seven wonders of the ancient world, hanging gardens of Babylon. Yep. You know. <laughs> high school. Jesus Christ! Play Civilization for Christ's sake. <laughs> Have you? I know you. I know you can build the Colossus and the Eiffel Tower. No, no, I, I, that would be different. Oh, okay, kind of wonder. Um, I'm missing it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, but I it doesn't. You're... It doesn't matter which one of those you choose, aside from the mechanics that you get when you start actually building your wonders. When when you get those wonders built, and and, and those those score tracks ramp up, those tend to be different between each each one of them. But yeah, you could have a clown on one of these and a pony on another. <laughs> and it yeah, wouldn't really I, matter. So so I mean, I'm uh, Rob. I'm I'm happy that the theme did it for you here. Uh, and certainly the fact that they're tech trees and everything, I get all the connections, but, but it is still fundamentally a pretty abstract game. Um, but, but I don't know whether we want to move on, but I was going to, I wanted, I wanted to talk about another game that I thought brought great theme to the party with actual minimal amounts of art or anything else. And that was battleship of all things, battleship galaxies, one of the most oddly titled games of all time. <laughs> I'm really glad because we're talking that, about this. This is a this is a core win for me because because this is just a so Battleship Galaxies comes out in uh, about a month and a half. I think we were lucky enough to be playing a pre-release copy. Um, it, it's from Hasbro of all people. Uh, even though they handed off all the Avalon Hill strategy games off to Wizards of the Coast to seemingly die a twisted death. Um, so this is coming out from Hasbro as a strategy hobby game and, uh, it's big, it's fat, it's meaty, and it is basically sins of a solar empire on a board, right? With big, big fat capital ships, squadrons of little tiny fighters and, you know, long range missile cruisers in the middle. Um, and, and this, the, the core strategy of it could be seen as very abstract. It's just, you know, you've got three different size units. You could call them, uh, tanks, cavalry, and infantry really wouldn't matter, right? I mean, you, you could you could rearrange these. I'm sorry, you know, you could call them, uh, you know, tanks, artillery, and infantry. It really wouldn't matter um, because that's kind of the roles that they're serving here. Uh, but because the theme is so built into it with these big giant ships that stand on stands, and the capital ships are you know the highest ships on the battlefield, and the squadrons are sort of running around underneath everybody, um, it just oozes theme to the level where what is really a fairly simple abstract tactical miniatures game i thought really portrayed an epic sense of space battle i mean did you guys get that you guys both had a chance to play that too right we, we did yeah rob do you want to you want to talk a little bit about it uh yeah sure i mean 
I don't think it's just like they, they could just as easily be, uh, you know, in, you know, tanks, infantry. I think one thing, one very smart move they make with this game is, uh, you know, the the game really revolves around your flagship, your big capital ship. Each, you know, you can play as either. Um, I don't remember the faction names, but there's, it's like Terrans versus it's Terrans like, versus pirates. You know, Terrans like, versus space pirates. pirates. Yeah, yeah, space pirates. Um, and and total and they're total like you know the the pirate ship designs are totally like. Uh, Firefly Reavers, or um, you know the pirates in Sins of a Civil War Empire, and uh, yeah, and the uh, the good guys, the legitimate government forces, are basically like the tech in um, Sins of a Civil War Empire. But what what the game does a great job of of getting at is, uh, you know, making the flagship feel like a real thing. Like it, you know, this is your this is the most capable ship in your in your fleet. It is going to be the heart of your strategy and if you lose it, you know, you're going to be hurting. And so, you know, I, I think, you know, in the game uh you and I played, Corey, I think there was a little bit of um I, I feel like uh the people we were playing with were getting a little bored with um the slow opening to the game because it does sort of have one. Well but, so be be fair, we were playing a variant of the rules. It's it. This is traditionally a a one on one game, right? And and right. we were playing two on two, uh, which is essentially where you're have where you have two one on one games going at the same time. We did bake a lot of teamwork into it, and and I don't think the other guys we were playing with did at the beginning. Did, and so did you they kick were, ass? Uh, we'll get to that in a second. We'll get to the no. yes, <laughs> but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, so so the way it works is. You know, it's it's one of those games where uh, everything you do costs uh, activation points, points basically. Right, right. Yeah, and you get uh, you get a certain number per turn. Uh, so it's very much one of those games, like uh, the the new Panzer General uh, Allied Assault. It's very much one of those games where you know you want to exploit your opportunities, but you don't want to burn through all your action points in one turn and then have to basically ride out an idle turn while the other guys are just you know hitting back with everything. Uh, so it's, it's very much about like judicious management of your point supply, and uh, bigger, better ships and better abilities cost more points. So it's you know that's that's the real tension. And one of the things I thought was really cool is, you know, the early game is very much this you know the two sides are feeling each other out. You know, you're going across this you know this this hex based starfield you know board, and the battleships like just start gliding toward each other and. Uh, the pirates are very much about like in close assaults. The uh, you know the good guys, the Terrans, are very much about like standoff um, distance combat. And so you, right away you've got this you know this this uh, this real opposition and tactics where the pirates are desperately trying to close and just get in your face to you know use their best abilities to really wreck your fleet. And you're just trying to you know keep you know keep crossing the T as it were. Uh, you know make sure that your your fleet can just keep popping shots of the pirates as they come and not let them get into killing range. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of great, like, there's a great little bat, like, jockeying for position in the early game. And right. then there's that point where the game flips, and the two sides now are have totally made contact, and all hell breaks loose. Right, and it feels like television, I mean, or a great big movie, right? I mean, it feels like episodes of Battlestar Galactica where... You know, there's there is that sort of like, oh, there's a battle star on the horizon. Launch the fighters, and then right. there's those moments of tension while everybody maneuvers, and then it's just a giant shitstorm until one team leaves, you know, leaves alive. And but it does it in a way that that 
it, it actually feels like you're telling that story, at least it did to me. I mean, this is why I was saying I felt like it was like the theme was everything here because I had seen these battles in my head so many times. And I don't know whether you guys got a chance to flip through the rule book, but there are all sorts of great scenarios in there that are more than just these quick head to heads. Right? Right. I mean, obviously, the easiest way to teach somebody this game is just say, I got my guys on your side. You got your guys on your side. They're nicely and evenly balanced. Let's go kill each other. When you set up a scenario that's got some of the more interesting things where you've got, oh, now there's obstacles, i.e. asteroids in the way, and that gives the pirates an advantage because they're used to hiding behind asteroids. So they can run out, make a quick attack, and then get back behind cover. And and there are things that you can, you know, that the that the tech equivalent can discover on the battlefield that give them bonuses to their atomic weapons. And right. you know, it, it actually creates much more asymmetrical play styles. Um, there's a real potential here, and I'm sure, uh, because it's Hasbro, that there are expansions in the works that will give us awesome, cool new little well, miniatures and new cards, and, right? And, I mean, I'm really craving those expansions, yeah. to be honest, because I like what the cards do. I like the idea of staffing your ships with crew members, and there's even a little comic book that establishes these people as characters in this world. Right. But uh, but it's it's just cool to have, like, Again, the way I played it is this is again like why the flagship is so important. It's natural for you to stack all your best all your best officers aboard the flagship because that's the most capable ship in the fleet. When but that then thing you goes lose down, your flagship. Yeah, it's taking it's taking right. the entire military academy with it. And and the space pirates can <laughs> easily take out that flagship. I mean, they the space pirates have have a, a boarding power. Man, where... and I still don't know what I think of that. You want to get into it? Yeah, so so this boarding power uh, lets lets them. It, they put a crew on the ship, and then they can. They was it a hijack? I think it was, I think the card was called hijack party, where they they would play this, and it would be permanently attached to whatever ship that they had just boarded. And if, whenever they activated this power for however many energy it cost, they'd roll their dice, and on a on a one or a seven, you would take two points of direct damage that you could you had no way to get around, and on an eight, they would just flat out take the ship over. And there's no way to kick that that boarding party off of your ship. Right, and we just assumed there was a card somewhere in our deck where we could be like, okay, you know, the like, pi- open the, the open the airlock, yeah, right, yeah, right, <laughs> and send in the marines or something. And by the time and, we realized that our flagship was basically on a death counter, yeah, um, you know, it was too late to do it. Like we totally would have played that differently because if we known the ship was dead anyway, we'd just sent it in. Uh, so that was really frustrating. On the other hand. You know, I mean, to be fair, we were hitting the, hitting the pirates with nukes right and left. I mean, it was like the first episode of BSG, where, like, just, you know, radiological alarm, and then, like, ships get nuked, you know, um, you know, in the dry dock. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's... There were things that frustrated me, but what was the result of, of these mechanics? Are you, are you asking me? Yeah, I mean, like, how are did you, our game Are you asking out? how I won the game and was totally awesome? Is that what you're asking? Uh, yes, that's that's in so many words what I was asking. Let's let's just be clear about this. The Rob realizes that our capital ship that he was in control of was was on a death counter, and he was basically ready to give up. He was just going to hand over the keys to the space pirates, and I said, "No, a man stands up." And this, so this I took shall not stand. That's right. So I was in control of a fleet of uh, a squadron of flight of fighters and a support ship. That had actually been performing really well uh, throughout the game. The support ship had this tremendous range, great bonuses that it was giving to the ships around it, uh, and, and capacity for really strong weapons. And so I had just been kind of 
kiting the other team, keeping keeping that shit back and 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 out of their range. Uh, and I sent in my my fighters to take on the capital ship that was left. Uh, and and the fighters have this special a couple of special powers. One of which is that as your wingmen get taken out, uh, you you have the ability to to somehow d- deal direct unblockable damage to a ship equal to the number of of your your squadron mates that have been taken out. You you track those on your card. Vengeance. It, yeah. I guess I was just using emo power to to like <laughs> psychically attack how, this capital how appropriate. ship. Right, I know, right, and uh, and that's that's eventually with one with one fighter left. This is how I took out the capital ship, and we won the game. Yeah, it's probably worth pointing out that the combat mechanic in this is is not only really interesting, and the one thing that sort of separates this from a beginner Starfleet battles, uh, but also the only thing that related to the name battleship in the game. Right. right. So when when you go to make an attack, right, my my big capital ship, say maybe their main gun gets two attacks. Two attacks means you get two die rolls. The die rolls you're rolling are essentially as if you were calling out battleship coordinates like b14 or b8 or c9 and then every ship on the opponent side that you're trying to attack with your two attacks has a little card that's got a grid on it like a battleship grid and then you just you look at it and if it's in the little part of it that has a ship in it uh then it was a hit however inside every one of those ships there is a critical area which i always call the engine room although sometimes it looks like it might be command or whatever but for lack of a better term we'll call it the engine room and if you manage to actually land an unshielded hit on the engine room boom so obviously this means that every capital ship, once it loses its shields, is susceptible to a single laser shot from a fighter, which frankly is really goddamn cool, right? It because is. that's it's very what leads cinematic. to great it's very cinematic. That's what leads to great stories, right? It also means that the biggest capital ship in the world can launch 15 attacks against a little small mosquito fighter that's running around it. And if it just keeps rolling A1, the top left corner of that grid. It will never kill that little fighter. And those that's how luck in a game like this should work, right? You have overwhelming odds because you've got a capital ship against a fighter, but there's that chance that you, that little fighter will survive and land the killing blow in the engine room and take down take down the battle star. So I'm I'm interested in hearing a little bit about your game, Julian. You you played with our friend Rob and and you I, I don't know if you guys like picked a scenario and then did like a full build because you start with like points to to build out your fleet right Uh, so so like rob and i had ours built for us yeah no so we were playing a specific scenario uh, like out of the book um and it was again a very simple one it was a very straight heads up we each had a capital ship two long-range missile cruisers uh and one squadron of fighters um, and in, in our case, a lot of it came down to deception because one of the cool things here is that smaller units can fit inside bigger ones. So right. you can take your squadron and put it inside your capital ship, or you can launch your long range missile cruiser from your capital ship. And so there's a certain amount of deception and there's a system for keeping track of this where you could say, just launch your capital ship out onto the field, which is secretly carrying your entire fleet. Now, the downside of doing that would be uh, because of this random mechanic, there is a very, very small chance that you could lose the game you on the first roll fleet. of the first combat, right? And and just lose your entire fleet. Now, that's very rare because only very special ships can get through shields right away, etc. But there is that chance that you could have screwed up. Um, 
but but so we cat so so Rob and I had this real sort of cat and mouse right where he was playing the tech equivalent on his side which has these very long range ships I was playing the pirates that really need to get in very close and so we did a lot of maneuvering maybe six turns of maneuvering to get across a board that you could theoretically just engage in the first turn right everybody runs to the middle and you could just fight so we did a lot of tactical maneuvering which was very very satisfying i have to say ultimately i lost but i felt like i fought a brilliant battle right to the end uh and lost a couple of key roles where you know there were a couple times when i could have had that cinematic moment and there were a couple times he could have had that cinematic moment and he got him and i didn't and it was great it felt really satisfying felt very cinematic but it also felt like a real strategy game it didn't just feel like we were flipping coins to see who won the engagement, right? Because we had that real tactical maneuvering going on on a hex grid. So it felt strategic. You know, one, one last side note, one, one cool thing, in addition to the uh, hit, you know, different hitbox for, um, for the battleships when you're calling out the coordinates with your, with your attack roll, uh, the, the other thing I, I enjoyed was the different size stands and how that affects the range at which you can engage because like the battleship has this huge the battleships have these huge stands there on the map so you know everyone shooting you know everyone like say you know a bunch of enemy ships have a range of two but the battleship is just going to be way easier for everyone because right, he's at. taking seven hexes of the board yeah versus a fighter which is taking one yeah so you gotta be you gotta be very deliberate about when you bring those guys in, like I, you know, I tried to only ever have a point exposed, but eventually you've just kind of got to go in. Um, yeah. I mean, the one, the one thing, I mean, the game is, it, the game isn't in complex. It's not a game for eight year olds. It's not battleship. The one thing that would have made this game even more interesting would have been facing. Now I understand right. that once you, I mean, first of all, facing in space combat seems a little weird or he's got shields, whatever. But screw that. Right? Facing would have made this game really complicated because now all of a sudden you're like, OK, I have to use a point to turn and then a point to move forward. Right. But it certainly would have made things like defending your capital ships and not showing uh, the tail of your fighter to the yep. long range missile cruiser much more interesting. And, well, and I I imagine it's only a matter of weeks before somebody releases the facing variant on the house this. rule. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, because the models are so the models are so good, you can tell where the weapon pods are. Oh yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean, you can easily create like, um, you know, line of sight rules. Uh, we should we should point out that the sculpts on this, like, if you're like a if you're like a science fiction nerd, the sculpts on this are worthy of putting on your cubicle, you know, monitor, just by themselves, even if you never play the game. Uh, so speaking of complexity, uh, I want to talk about uh, a couple games, really. I think uh, two games I want to kind of juxtapose, uh, Castle Ravenloft and Last Night on Earth. Last Night on Earth is kind of a Rabbitcon standby. We always play it. It's a uh, tactical zombie survival game. That's uh, Yeah, yeah I guess it that's is. about right. That's heavily, about right, yeah. It's heavily informed by schlocky zombie movies. And then the last, and then the last game we played... Uh, you know, Corey and I uh, stopped by Ken Levine's, and we played Castle Ravenloft. Uh, and you know, I, you know, I'm worried it's going to sound like I totally hated the game; it was the worst experience ever. Uh, but it's more—it's more that there was just a missed opportunity in Castle Ravenloft. There was there was clearly something missing, and it was an L, it was the opportunity to really be strategic about how you were handling this dungeon crawl. Well, and you guys kept making fun of me because I kept asking questions like, "So is that it?" 
Like, is that so? You know, there's like, there's, you know, you're you're in this dungeon crawl. There's there's little bits of art scattered around the floor plan. So I'm looking at it and like, okay, does that does that block line of sight? Does that does that change movement rate? Yeah, you want to a big argument a about line of sight. You wanted it to be a game that it's not, right? I mean, that's I want, the thing. Well, I want that- to I want to bear more than a passing resemblance to D and D. At least, like I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't expecting I wasn't expecting like you know Third Reich or anything like that. But you know, it was just one of those things where the decisions you had to make were it's not really a decision if it's painfully self evident, right? Right. So so here here's I'm going to cut you off because I think the answer is Rob, this is not a game for you. This is a game for my kids. I've played more games of Castle Ravenloft than I have with my kids than I have with adults, and probably. Uh, you know, we'll never play it really again with adults. I've played the I we we played the the new version of this, which is Shards of Vashalaron or Ashes of Shardalon or whatever it is. Shamalama um, Ding Dong. Shamalama Ding Dong, which changes a few of the core rules and the, the layouts are a little more interesting and it sort of gets around the fact that it doesn't have those complex decisions by not presenting you with what seem like obvious things like, oh, I can't shoot around a corner. Um, so it gets around some of that, but but fundamentally, it still has the same problem, which is it's not a tactical miniatures game, right? It's a extraordinarily simply simple storytelling game, which lends itself to cinematic moments. We were just talking about that. It lends itself nicely to oh, we almost had it and we got horribly slaughtered, or we almost had it and yes, you know, Bob rolled the twenty and we won the day. And when you're playing with kids. That's freaking awesome. But I would never suggest this as a game that you should play as any kind of strategy game where you feel like skills should make the difference between winning and losing. You might have been happier if we'd taken Ken's suggestion and played Descent, although we didn't have yes. 15 hours to play it. But that's much more of a tactical miniature yes. kind of game. Absolutely. But that would you, but you'd still be there playing right now. Yeah, yeah. It, it would be very awkward. Well, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'd say it's like aimed at kids because I, I certainly seem to. I seem, certainly seem to know more adults who end up playing it. Uh, before the show, I was talking to uh, Bill Abner, and I was like, "So, you know, we're, we're thinking about talking about Castle Ravenloft." And uh, Bill did his Bill thing. He just instant teed off on that game. Uh, just tore into it, and in, in I am. But he was saying it was it was one of the very few times that he came very close to a strangling Game Sharks board game critic, uh, Michael Barnes. Because uh, Barnes recommended, like I mean, just Bill has a true but, hatred for that but, game, and I. It's, but it's because I it's really, a baby game. It's not a baby game, but there, it's a baby are, game. It is the the thing is is that this is a beer and pretzels game. The way can't stop is a beer and pretzels game. Right, you would never play can't stop a game about rolling dice and pressing your luck, thinking that your skill level in this game made any difference about whether you're going to win or lose, right? right? It's like, you know, yes, you can have some level of, oh, I know the odds and I should stop. But fundamentally, that's a dice game. And if the dice go the right way, sure. some crazy idiot's going to win. And if the dice it's, go it's, the wrong it's way... It's just luck. It's absolutely it's luck. Just luck. But, but compare compare our experience with Castle Ravenloft to how you guys felt playing Last Night on Earth, which is much more tactically evolved. and it's not, And that's not about... Well, I guess it is about telling stories. I don't know. Maybe you can't have both. I think it's absolutely about telling stories, right? Did you manage to have sex with the cheerleader in the barn before the uh, zombie apocalypse, or didn't yeah, there's, you? I mean, there's a really, there's a real dearth of of sexual activity in the uh, last night <laughs> games I've had. Um, it's it's really frustrating. Like, People need to relieve stress during a zombie apocalypse, I guess. 
To yep. be clear, that is the the titular card of the game. This is really? our last night really? on Earth. Yes. Really? Yes. Yeah. You, you, if if, uh, if two characters are in a, in a square together and you play the last night on Earth card, they get they, they lose a turn. Yeah. They lose a turn because they're just you know we're getting doomed. I thought he was making a pun on tits. I apologize. Go well, right ahead. No. No. So. Thanks for bringing but, the conversation down, Corey. Yep, that's what it brings. No, it's count on you. But yes, actually, I would, I would actually argue that Last Night on Earth is a superior strategic game to Castle Ravenloft. The problem is people don't think of Last Night on Earth as a strategic game because it's built out of kind of hippie storytelling roots, really at its core. And people don't think of Castle Ravenloft as a cinematic storytelling game based mostly on luck because it comes from a tactical miniatures wargaming background, right? I mean, that's the problem. These are these two genres, both aiming for the middle in a way. Uh, and and Castle Ravenloft, for, for your taste, goes way too far. And Last Night on Earth comes way up. See, I just can't, like, you know, every time you say, like, Castle Ravenloft is a cinematic storytelling device, like, I just... You know, I don't see it. There's, there's too little of that. Because in, in Last Night on Earth, for instance, you've got cards every turn that tell the story. You know, like, there's a card, like, here's this, here's this bit oh, character yeah, but, that pops but, but out but of the But that comes from storytellers, right? right? I mean, that comes from, you know, the brothers who made that game. And I, know, I, and I mean that because they're actually brothers. <laughs> right there. They, those guys are storytellers. That's what they want to do. They want to retell B-movies. Games just happen to be cheaper than making movies for them. And, right, and Castle Ravenloft, conversely, wants to tell the same sort of really cheesy fantasy story that they've been selling in books for years. <laughs> exactly. Except, except that it fails to do that. Even I mean, you keep calling you keep calling Ravenloft to sit. I don't want to get off on a tangent on this because I'd rather go back to like the actual tactical, interesting elements of Last Night on Earth. But the real problem with Castle Ravenloft is that it doesn't even tell the stories that well. It is a game uh, for babies. Uh, yeah. I, 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 I just disagree. I mean, I, I, I don't think it's the best game ever made. I think it's a brilliant gateway game for people who have played a lot of traditional board games and, and are, are nudging their way, nudging their nose under the tent of real quote-unquote games. But that's what it is. It's a game for people nudging their nose under the tent, either because they're young or they're very inexperienced with games. I don't know. I think, I think the simplicity of it could be... You know, could be a turnoff, and that that would be my fear because I felt like there was, you know, when it was your turn, it was very clear what you should do, and then you just sort of idled there for ten minutes. Well, it wasn't ten minutes, but sometimes it felt like ten minutes. But you just sort of idled there while everyone else took their turn. It I gave us wonder, a great opportunity to have great conversations and talk yeah. a lot and have a good time. But yeah. from from a from an that's actual fair. like that's, that's tabletop that's game totally level, fair. from 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 a tabletop game level, I think a much more rewarding experience is something like Last Night on Earth. I, that's totally fair. I'm not trying to sell. I'm not trying to sell copies of Castle Ravenloft here to core strategy gamers. I'm not doing that at all. I'm just saying I think Castle Ravenloft fills a niche. It just doesn't happen to be this niche. Right. Last Night on Earth, on the other hand, I think introduces interesting comedic storytelling elements to strategy gamers brilliantly. Yeah, and I think it does a really good job of mixing, you know, the tactical elements with the. Uh, card dynamics and the storytelling to really, you know, every turn, every turn last night on Earth, uh, it's one of those games where every turn you and your team are getting into a deep, involved discussion of what the hell should we do next, you know, because you're, you know, you're beset by zombies, and that's and that's the great thing. The game just keeps raising the stakes, and if you try to, 
you know, again, you're in a zombie movie. If you try to corner up, the zombies are coming through the walls and you're getting overwhelmed. So it's this constant like you got to keep moving, but we got to stick together. You know, got to you know look out for each other. Um, and then we've we've got to play our cards right. And the and the guy playing the zombies uh, has just all these. You know, he has an arsenal of cards that can totally change the battlefield. Uh, you know, rip it right out from under you. So it's just, you know, th- that's a game that I, w- you know, I would actually urge, uh, you know, I would actually point point to as as much more satisfying. You know, if you if you're looking at games to have people sort of sticking their nose under the tent, as it were. I think the themes there are. I think it's. I think it's. I think it's a witty enough game. I think the theme is universal enough. Uh, that that's a that that's a more satisfying experience, and if you're playing with you know a person or two who who know know who who knows what they're doing, uh, you're going you're going to see all the interesting decisions you've got to make in a turn, and how all the pieces come together. And I think that's really uh, one of the most satisfying aspects of a game. And I don't think that's what you get in a game like Ravenloft. And that's and yeah. that's my fear is is that. To say, well, this is this is an introductory game. I think you got to introduce people to the real pleasure of a good strategy game, and I think that I think Last Night on Earth succeeds at that. Yeah, I think I think that's fair, and I think the other thing is that you know Castle Ravenloft is trying to be purely cooperative, and so a lot gets dragged down into the mechanics of there is no opponent, right? The deck is the opponent. The board gets very rote after a while. It doesn't lend itself to a lot of replayability. It, it increases the randomness of the game because everything is resultant from whatever comes out of that deck as far as you know what happens to the players in a bad way. Um, Last Night on Earth, and I would say even more so Invasion from Outer Space, which is their Aliens versus Carnies game based on the same system, um, but, but I would say vastly refined. Um, actually is a brilliant quasi cooperative game where three or four people are playing against somebody and everybody's always got an interesting decision to make. I mean, I, we've said that before. I mean, that to me is the sign of a great board game when you always feel like you have an interesting decision to make. You're not skipping your turn. You're not doing something because it's ridiculously obvious that, okay, I charge this guy and I roll my 20 sided die, which I think is part of your problem, Rob, is that a lot of the times the decisions, while they might end up being cinematic if you're nine years old, are not particularly interesting decisions. Like, aha, I figured out how to do this. In, in Invasion from Outer Space, that bar gets raised even further. Um, and I think that got played once or twice here at Rabicon, but I highly recommend anybody who's interested in any of these games, I would actually suggest people skip the zombie game unless they're just zombie nuts and go straight to Invasion from Outer Space because they're so com- they're so similar that the games are actually compatible and you can mix and match the pieces and the cards, but the core roles that everybody has are much more defined and therefore... The decisions get more interesting. Uh, so that about covers all the games that I played. Did any of you play anything else that uh, that caught your eye that you wanted to address before we uh, wrap it up? Well, I can't. I can't go without mentioning playing another round of War of the Ring, which I lost again. Okay. Which you know, our, our just whole discussion here of theme earlier. You know, talk about just the just the perfect blend of core strategic gameplay and deep, deep theme. I mean, there's no way you could say that game could ever be abstracted. Uh, nor could you ever say it's just rotely following the theme without any interesting decisions along the way. I played another. Th- I play. I actually managed to teach and play that game in two and a half hours, which is something of a record. Yeah. Uh, and played it all the way to the slopes of Mordor. Lost five steps away 
from the slopes of Mordor, which which I sort of almost consider a victory. I mean, that's a that's a close game, which is all I really ever it's, want it's out of a good game. It's hard to be the free peoples. It's yeah, it's it's, it's hard easy. to be the free peoples. And and he, yeah, I was playing against Sean Andrich. He played a, played a good solid game uh, as Sauron understood it very quickly. I again can't recommend that game enough. Right? I mean, if you've got somebody who shows up at your house. Once every two weeks to play a big four-hour war game. I can't think of a better one. Is that thing available again? Because we we, we do we recommend it all the time, but I also heard a lot of complaints this weekend that we keep getting people hooked on this game, and then they go try to find it, and it's retailing for like you know two hundred dollars because it's out of print. Yeah, that may be true, but I can't imagine they're not going to reprint it. Yeah, it absolutely um, should. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, just, just looking very quickly. Yeah, it, it, it does seem to be out of print, and it seems to be selling for about seventy to a hundred dollars. But then again, this is a game that sold in game stores, I think, originally for seventy. So, uh, just as an aside, uh, that that puts me in mind of one thing I did want to mention. I said, you know, I think I'm, I'm becoming addicted to uh, mechanics where they kind of make it difficult for you to just you know, hand out orders willy nilly. Uh, I, I'm really enjoying, you know, the the battleship activation points, um, the the card mechanics of, uh, you know, War of the Ring, where it's really like, can, you know, the card and dice mechanics of War of the Ring, where you know, can you play cards that allow you to break the game's core rules a little bit? Uh, do do your dice come up that let you give the orders that you find most useful right now? Because if you get a bad roll, you might spend a turn just, you know, building up armies when really you need to be reacting to stuff and moving around. I'm really starting to, again, going back to a, a theme I revisit a lot. I'm a big fan of disempowering players a little bit, you know, just sort of just sort of gently gimping them so that they've got, they can't just do whatever they whatever do whatever they will. They have to kind of make they have to react choice. to a situation. Make yeah, they have to they have to react to what came up, and then they've got to prioritize with the limited command resources they're given, and that's something I really enjoy. Uh, I, I love it in board games, and it's something that I don't think you see too much of that in uh, computer games, honestly. Uh, yeah. You know, like movement points are a classic limitation, but there's all, but but that's it, right? Like every unit can move. There's there are very few games that say, "Well, sorry, uh, here you know here's your limited menu of options for this turn." Right. Right. You're absolutely right. I it would be really interesting to see more of that. I'm not sure how you could pull it off in in certain games, but. Uh, well, adding adding to the complexity of of the situation you need to react to, I think a lot of times developers do that not for the player, but they they just tend to give the AI opponent you know more opportunities. Well, I, I know that um, Ajod had a command activation system for their war games where it's sort of a descending high. That's what this is why chain of command is so important in those games. So like whoever your army commander is, there's a basically a dice roll at the start of the turn to see whether he activates. And if he activates, he can move his armies around with uh, full combat bonuses, with full movement points. If he fails to activate, say you got a, you know, say you got McClellan, McClellan's never going to activate. Basically, he's going to fail roll after roll. And then because he didn't activate, now all his subordinates have a tougher time activating. The the problem you run into there is, you know, the the big difference is, you know, you you roll you you roll the dice in a War of the Ring game. And instantly you see what just happened and you understand all the ramifications of what went into it because, hey, you just rolled dice and here's what came up. It can get really frustrating in age odds games where, you know, just out of the blue seemingly, you know, half your army just can't move. And it's, it, it's tough, you know, it's tough to balance the, 
it's tough. It's tough to make that a to to make to create fun limitations as opposed to things that are just going to piss people off. Right. And I think I think board games maybe have it a little easier because they aren't as obligated to try to be realistic. All right, so uh, so that about does it for our show. As always, thanks to Michael Hermes for doing short notice production work on this episode, and a big thanks to Julian and the outstanding RabbitCon guests uh, who made it such a great weekend. Uh, be sure to listen to the next few shows where you can look forward to us talking about Six Gun Saga with Vic Davis, uh, Frozen Synapse, and Paradox France's Pride of Nations. Uh, those, those will hopefully all be coming up as topics over the next few weeks. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to have to leave off here for now. So uh, say good night. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone.